Hey, I'm Lee Kasumba, and this is our journey across Africa, navigating the intricate landscapes of business, culture, and global influence from the African perspective. Africa Whisperer, telling authentic African stories in a global way. On this episode of the Africa Whisperer. It was a big bet for us and a, a lot of risk. So we waited and we sat there, we waited. It was a few weeks until we would get the books. Then one day this big lorry came with pallets, boxes after boxes after boxes. Uh, we shipped them into our living room. Our living room, not as bad as it is, you know, now we have storage facilities and storage space. So we only keep a small amount of books in our home. Um, but at that time, our house looked like an Amazon warehouse. On this episode of the Africa Whisperer, I chat to Louisa Olafui. She, along with her husband, Dele Olafui, started Kunda Kids, which is an award-winning children publishing and media studio. This conversation was filled with so many gems as Louisa candidly spoke about the background of the Kunda Kids story and some of the behind the scenes aspects, including her literally driving around London with her son, Ire, delivering books because of the delay in the Royal Mail service. Now, how this family went from being a mom and dad in marketing to building this amazing company, which is inspired by their son, is a reminder of what is possible and the fact that African stories and history matter. This whole conversation was heartwarming and inspiring, and I hope that it motivates you to take a step to fulfilling your dream. Louise, I'm really so excited to be speaking to you about Kunda Kids. There's a famous Toni Morrison quote that says that if you can't find the book you want to read, you have to write. And I feel like that's exactly what could look A hundred percent. And I'm so happy to be here, Lee. You know, I'm a very big fan. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me into your space and giving me an opportunity to, yeah, to talk about what I've been up to, I guess. Firstly, just to track back to how the whole story of Kunda Kids began. So I had a conversation quite recently with a few friends and it's something that's come out even in interviews uh, with different people that we've had on the Africa Whisperer. People have spoken about how 2020 and the last two years in general in the world has been kind of like, if you want to do something, you have to go ahead with it because what do we have to lose anyway, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. For you, do you feel like 2020 was a catalyst really to be able to push the kids as fast and as quickly as it did? Yeah, great question. So I think it's a combination of a couple of things. Uh, Kunda Kids may have existed, but certainly not in the way that it does now if it wasn't for uh, lockdown. And Dele, my husband and business partner and myself, just having a lot of time to spend with each other, probably too much time in lockdown. <laughs> Now, we talked about a, a number of things and came up with a number of things. So I think that slowing down of life uh, enabled us to think and get creative and look at problems and, and how to solve them. And then sure, the other thing is just becoming a mum. I think having your world sort of turned upside down in the beauty and the chaos of parenting uh, it opens a whole new perspective and I didn't know anything, didn't care about anything to do with children's content until I became a parent. Mm -hmm. A whole new world was opened up to me and a lot of gaps um, and a, a lot of sort of unsolved problems were also made apparent to me. Pre-Kunda Kids, when you would go into a store or in this case, try order a book, what were you finding on the shelves? What was there? What was not there? What were some of the shocking or kind of horrific stories? Because if I know you, there must have been a point where you're like, okay, this is... Uh, well, um, I don't even know if you, you know this, Lee, but uh, I'll share it with you anyway. So Kunda Kids initially started as an idea for a clothing line. I traveled to Uganda. I'd taken my son, Ire, um, whose middle name is Kunda. So that's where the name comes from. It means love in Uganda. Um, I had taken him to Uganda on his first birthday. And I was dealing with having a one-year-old running around, crawling. Clo his clothes were always getting ruined. And I thought, you know, I'd love to make an athleisure line for children. The same way that I have like um, gym clothes are designed for an active life. I don't think children's clothes are. 
but then children's clothes can also be expensive and the turnover is really high. So this is something that I was looking into. And then the pandemic happened and nobody was buying clothes. So we were like, all right, let's bin that for now or let's put a pause on it. Maybe not bin it, but let's put a pause on it. We were home a lot and uh, trying to encourage Ira to start communicating. And then that's when I started investing my time in books and stories and really realized that there was such a lack of black representation in the UK, which is where we were based. We're based. We were based in Cambridge at the time. Now we're in London. Black representation already is at a low. It's at about 4% in the UK of published books having a black lead character. It's about 10% in the US and, and, and Canada. But when you talk about African representation, African characters celebrating African themes, um, introducing children as young as toddlers to uh, African history, zero. I mean, not zero, but very, very, very small. And most of the books that we were seeing were published by in independent authors. Um, but there didn't seem to be anybody that was kind of taking on the challenge to inspiring the next generation about being proud of being African and, and having some awareness and having some information that was um, encouraging and progressive. And then there was also nothing for non-African children and parents to learn, have an appreciation um, and have a reason to celebrate uh, African culture. So that's when we started asking ourselves, well, what do we know about African history? And I was telling my husband because the differences between us, he was born and raised in Nigeria uh, and now we're living in the UK, but he's lived all of his life in Africa. Whereas I was born in Uganda and I've lived all my life in the UK and our experiences are starkly different. Um, my introduction to African history was just learning about slavery uh, and it was very awkward and uncomfortable. And that whole education was disappointing. And I would have been disappointed as a parent if my son was to receive that kind of um, education. But unfortunately, most children are still learning about Africa, thinking that it it starts and ends, you know, African history, that it starts and ends with slavery. When we started doing some research about incredible people in African history, and that inspired our first collection, um, Africa's Loads of Kings and Queens, as a company, we've gone on to just celebrate African culture um, in a way that doesn't ignore but detaches uh, our existence of Africans in this world to struggle and poverty and racism. These things are important, but we weave them into storylines that are that are fun and uh, enjoyable and build on soft skills. So, so yeah, Louisa, you have literally answered. <laughs> 20 questions <laughs> in that one answer. But I love that because it really just shows how much thought went into it and how everything is intentional. And there's detail, which entrepreneur that we've just interviewed, a creative entrepreneur, he started Batu Sneakers in South Africa. You find that when people have a marketing background or accounting background, they tend to think of all of the aspects versus somebody who's just like, I have. Yeah, there was intentionality, but at the same time, it's not really like we set out to say we're going to become the number one publisher in this space, this, that, that, the other. I think we were just flowing very freely and, um, and challenging ourselves with very small steps. Can we write a story? Oh, cool. Can we think about illustrating one book? Okay. Can we do four? Uh, it started with books and now it's a whole range of different things. So there was intention. But then there was also just kind of like an openness. Kunda Kids, as you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, is named after your son, um, which is so awesome. It's quite literally something generational and a mantle that you can pass down to him and also a love story to him. Uh, is this the way that you view it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, and I hope so. Um, at this time, you know, I, I'm there's no, no secret about my age. I'm 35 and I'm at a point in my life where... I'm starting to think about legacy and what it is that I want to leave behind, uh, knowing that tomorrow is never promised to anybody, uh, feeling like, okay, I'm leaving something behind beyond that just for my family. And, and I hope that's the case. I hope that'll be the case.
Definitely. Now, as you mentioned, I'm at the beginning, the first series from my understanding with Kunda Kids, because it's quite multi-layered in terms of the business structure, the actual book series and so forth. But the entry was African Kings and Queens. I'll, I'll just tell on myself, I really always thought that, oh, I know about every all these African royals and so forth. So as I was seeing the title, I was like literally typing in Google. I'm like, oh my gosh, who's this? Oh my gosh, who's that? <laughs> And I found it so fascinating because it, I, I realized that even as me, as somebody who considers myself to be pretty well learned in the continent, I thought that I knew what was going on even in, next, in neighboring countries. And I really didn't. When it came to selecting the different kings and queens that you would represent, how did that happen? How did you even think of them? Was it stories that you had heard of before? Uh, you make a, such an interesting point, Lee, about thinking that you know it all, <laughs> realizing that there's a lot you don't know. I find our backgrounds are not the same, but they're somewhat similar in the sense that we both come from a journalist, sort of journalist storytelling background with a focus on Africa and the diaspora. So, you know, at some point in my life, I regarded myself as an Afropolitan, which is like a term we were using in London at the height of like um, this sort of Afro uh, revolution among millennials who were kind of connecting to their roots and feeling somewhat estranged from the estranged from the continent. You know, I didn't think that I knew it all, but I definitely felt like I was a decent representation of like African culture. And I was talking about a lot of things to do with lifestyle, politics, culture, society, until I met my husband, who is Nigerian. And, you know, <laughs> in a way, it, with all due respect, he was like, I love everything that you're doing, but there's nothing that's going to um, compensate for being in Africa, living, working there, having friends, you know, there's being in the diaspora is different. But we talked about the fact that when you are in the diaspora, you do want to connect and you do need to have those different ways of connecting through music. Um, social media has been a fantastic way of kind of living in a global village even more so. We kind of just talked about what we knew and what we knew and realized that we didn't know that much. So we knew that, for instance, Mansa Musa, which is one of our characters in one of our best-selling books, Mansa Musa built a school. A lot of people know that Mansa Musa was one of the one of the richest people in history, period. I remember Dele debating this point uh, on his MBA in Cambridge, where, where a lot of people said, oh, it's Rockefeller. And, 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 you know, he came with his receipts and said, no, it's Mansa Musa. Here we go. But what we didn't know is that actually he had built a lot of uh, schools and universities. And at that time, Mali was the hub of education in the world. People from all over um, and people in other continents came to Mali to learn mathematics, astrology, um, theology. And, you know, we don't see uh, Africa as being the elite place to be for education, but actually it was. So that's why we decided to focus on, you know, Mansa Musa builds a school as opposed to like Mansa Musa being the richest person in the world. But we do kind of, we did a lot of research on the internet. And then I think the funnest part was speaking to like my grandparents. I called up my elders and I said, I really want to learn about Ugandan history, who were like the kings and queens that did things. Um, what empowering women do you know that existed in history? So that was a really nice uh, exercise that was lovely and enlightening. But honestly, that research process, uh, Lee, was a combination of genuine conversations and Google. The beauty of the African continent is how big and diverse and so filled with different cultures and stories that it is. So when it comes to the Kings and Queens series, how did you decide which stories to go with since the first set only has seven, if I'm not mistaken? And you know that there's always that issue of one country or countries seeming to get more of a preference than others. How did you tackle that? I love this question. So the first four books that we published under the series Africa's Little Kings and Queens we were very intentional not to have a Nigerian character. Wow. We have a very large Nigerian community in the UK and we have very large Nigerian community in life in terms of friends and family. And Nigerians influence so much of what people know about Africa. But we also felt like we wanted to show that there is so much to learn about you know, other other people in other places. So our first four books, we uh, the characters that we 
the characters that we kind of drew reference from were uh, Shaka Zulu, South Africa, mm-hmm. Queen Katami uh, in from Uganda that I learned about for the first time and a lot of people had never heard of. So that was really exciting. Um, and then Mansa Musa from Mali and then Queen Ya from Ghana. So we were intentional not to include Nigeria, um, but actually now we have two Nigerian characters um, in our full collection. But when we started, we wanted to open that conversation about, you know, what else, who else is happening, mm. who else exists and what else is happening in, across the continent and, and in history. I really love that approach. I do. Even in a previous conversation I had with Chef Coco on the same podcast, he believes in representing African food. So it tastes exactly as it should be tasting. But sometimes he thinks that when it comes to presentation and so forth, there are ways that we can do it creatively. It makes me think of Kunda Kids from the perspective that you've picked up on these different kings and queens from different parts of the continent and you're not coming in with the entry level of oh my gosh this is bad there was no happily there was no good ending you've actually taken even a little bit of poetic license when it comes to the way that the characters are featured within the books can you talk to us a bit about that absolutely so um history is um history can actually be quite horrible to be honest you know <laughs> Uh, in terms of humanity and humans and, and the things that we've done, um, our moral compass has evolved as we have evolved through the ages. So what might have been acceptable uh, in the 1800s or, you know, is not, obviously is not going to go, it's not going to fly now. So we were quite conscious that I we don't want to introduce three-year-olds to the brutality of war and uh, colonialization. So we said, let's take the characters who we're talking about. So let's use Shaka Zulu as an example. What are the sort of fundamental uh, characteristics that make him who he is? We know that he was brave. We know that he was a leader. Um, But if you Google Shaka Zulu, you'll find that there's this image of this kind of stern tough looking man that um, just looks mean. And uh, but then I kind of thought and a lot of my sort of professional background has been in market research and and consumer behavior and consumer psychology, which is people behavior and people psychology. So I thought, well, we're all multidimensional people. Uh, You might catch me at work and I'm bossing it in a meeting and you'll think, wow, she's so confident and capable and this, that and the other. But then you might see me at home, um, you know, have a breakdown because of something else. And you think, oh, she's, you know, uh, stressed or uh, weak or unstable. We are so multidimensional based on the different environments that we are and the things that we are going through. And I felt like people like Shaka Zulu, people only see them in see him in one way. And I'm sure that there was more to him than that. So we said, let's take these people, real people that existed, take the positive elements from them. He was a leader. Um, He was strong. He was brave. He was confident. Um, But make it fictional history. Like let's, um, historical fiction is the genre. And the story for Shaka Zulu is called Shaka Zulu Learns to Dance. We know how important dance and music is in South Africa and in South African culture and bringing people together. So we created a storyline where, you know, Shaka Zulu was learning to dance. He he was insecure about his lack of ability to <laughs> to dance, and which was a really important thing uh, in the community that he was. So he learns to do it through becoming confident and understanding that everybody has their unique style. There was really no need to talk about war or to talk about things that are completely irrelevant and uninteresting and inappropriate to children. We want to introduce young children to African history. We're not historians and we're not teachers. We're storytellers and content creators. A very quick example, the story is Queen Yasa is the golden stool. This is probably the one that's modeled to history the most. The golden stool is a stool that exists um, and Queen Yasa did try to save it. Unfortunately, it was stolen by the Portuguese, I believe. So the ending of that story is not positive at all. You know, the the story of Queen Ya is quite a sad story, but she was an incredibly brave person that that rose to the challenge of protecting her people and her culture. So in our story, there is a stall. 
that exists that she's responsible for taking care of. Some people, outsiders, were jealous and tried to take it. Um, but her, her friends and her animal friends as well uh, came and rescued it and everybody lived happily ever after. So they're not factual historical accounts. We take the essence of that person and create a story for kids that's just fun. And when they're older, they can do a little bit more research uh, and take an interest based on the fact that we've sown a seed and we've created uh, a reference and a familiarity to that person. Yes, I really love this. I mean, I, I even saw an interview uh, with Dele uh, where he spoke about how you guys went to Kenya for World Book Day or something like that. And you were both pretty surprised that when you walked into bookshops, the amount of African books or books written by Africans was quite minuscule. And I think that what I love about this entire series, as we mentioned at the top of this, is that even for people who are you know, born and raised in the continent, we don't actually know each other's stories as much as their borders, like land borders and you know the continent being drawn out into different maps for whoever's benefit. Similarly, when it comes to how much we know about our neighbors or people, you know, a little further up from whatever country it is that we come from, there's an audience even within the continent where more of us need to know the stories of leaders in Africa. Absolutely. And when it comes to storytelling, especially from um, that preschool age, a shared experience with the parent and the child. And a lot of the time we get parents saying to us that, wow, actually I didn't know this about Shaka Zulu, or I didn't know who Queen Katami was, or I didn't know that there was a golden stool. I've heard of Yasantiwa, but I didn't know that, you know, she was actually um, one of the first female uh, leaders, you know, in, in Ghana's history to really go to battle um, in the same way that men would have gone to battle. So inside all of our books uh, within the Africa's Little Kings and Queens series, we have a page with maybe just about two to three hundred words, briefly summarizing who this character was, um, what their character was like and what they achieved to give context to you know, to the story. So Queen Ya saves a golden store. She's riding on elephants and she's got these really cute sort of Afro um, pigtails. Uh, there is a there is a combination of um, fun and learning that happens. And, and I would also just like to say that as adults, especially adults trying to teach children or trying to impart some kind of knowledge to children um, or even write for children, it's very easy to get caught up in the, um, it's very easy to, to, to say, I want you to learn this. I want you to know this person. I want you to learn this. But children just want to have fun. They're not trying to do all this heavy stuff. They just want to see characters that intrigue them. They want to have storylines that make them laugh. They want excuses for you to make funny faces and funny noises during the, during the uh, story time. So we just said it's fun first for our book. Fun comes first. Let's just have a really fun storyline and a cool character. And then we will delicately weave these important points um, about about soft skills, about being a better person um, into the story so that children are learning through play. They're learning through fun. It's not a chore. And I think that that's been one of the biggest reasons that we see a breakdown in um, reading culture within our community, especially on really important topics, because they're not fun. They're not fun. For they're not having time. Why would you read a story on African history, A to Z, that seems so, you know, boring when you can go on Instagram or play Roblox? So as publishers, we're really competing um, against stimulants for young people. So it's important to make things fun. So that's kind of our process. Make it fun first and then weave the, the learning delicately in so that it's not, you know, you barely even know it's there, but you will naturally take something from it and, and, and parents can learn too. 
Now, before we, we shift gears into just the processes and uh, the financing behind it and just the business of publishing and being content creators and basically living in a tech world, which you guys are all of these things together. You know, the characters that you have in the books, um, I think it's so important. You have quite a fair amount of women. And there's always this, this idea that when it comes to women and their role in history in Africa, from the outside looking in, there's always an idea that no, women did nothing, you know, and it kind of makes you think, hmm, you know, who really brought about this whole idea of patriarchy when we've had great African women who've done awesome things? Was this intentional um, when it came to selecting for there to be a gender balance or was it just something that happened as you were researching? Well, it's something that we were aware of. So we have an, um, an odd books. We have seven books in the collection. Uh, four of those titles are female leader, um, you know, women, and then three are are men. It wasn't sort of something that was intentional, but we were mindful, right? I'm somebody that I like to take a lot of time trawling, kind of going through comments, uh, even when people are very, you know, we don't we don't get a lot of criticism, but we, people do sometimes give feedback that that makes me think, right? And I remember seeing a comment that somebody left um, about Queen Kitami makes friends. Some books are really closely linked to the events that happen in history, and then others are a little bit more broad. This is an example of one that's a little bit more broad because um, around her reign and uh, what she did, who she did it with, and, and so forth are a little bit vague and more difficult to verify. And we have to be very careful about that. So we decided to make it a little bit more broad. Let's take what we know and let's make her make friends. So this story was about her having to uh, step into a new environment and meet different types of people, right? And think that she only wants to be around people that she knows or like her or that what she's used to. Um, and actually there's a lot of joy that can come from exposing yourself to new people and new environments. So just a children's story about making friends. Uh, to, in regards to that, somebody left a comment on Facebook and said, wow, Queen Katami did all of this. She won this battle. She saved her people from this and that. She had an all-female uh, army. And then all you do is say that she made friends. Seriously? So I thought that that was, I thought that was great feedback. In the book, you know, like I mentioned that we have about 200 words or so at the beginning highlighting who she was. And we talk about that. We talk about she was one of the, she had an all female army. She led, uh, her, her, her team into battle. And even when we watch Wakanda and we see that all female army in that movie, a lot of those are taken from references like Queen Katami, right? Um, but I understood his point. And I think it's really key that we, you know, we take that on as such with Shaka Zulu. He's such a hyper masculine person in our minds, but actually in our story, we make him a lot more softer. I think that it's absolutely fine to do that. There's, there's no need to, you know, hyper masculinize or, you know, make anybody hyper feminine. I was very intentional to bring out our, our last story, which was Queen Amina and the Zazao Games. And that's a story about um, not just equality, equality, yes, but equity, right? Um, and it's a story about how women are excluded and you might find that girls find themselves excluded from things that they feel that they are completely capable of doing. It's perfectly acceptable to do what you want to do and be who you want to be and achieve things. We use sports as an analogy for this, but it can be across a range of different things. And I wanted us to be able to have like this badass, kick-ass character that was not going to sit there and take it just because she was a girl. Getting feedback on some of those things around, you know, gender and social politics uh, is something that is important to us. Given our target audience, we, you know, we, we still do approach it, but we just have to approach it similarly in a fun way. Again, just having a fun story, but we, you know, we definitely did think about sort of that gender balance. We're likely to produce more, more um, books in the series and think about all of these things, you know, even, even more so. But right now I'm very happy that we have four female characters three male characters. I think it's a very good balance for the collection. 
um, because we know a lot more about men's role in history than women's role in history. So I do think that the balance that we have is the balance that's needed, given uh, the lack of education that we've all been given around female participation in history. Now, there's multi-audiences that would possibly be your target. I think, obviously, you'd want everybody around the world to be reading the books. But at the very top of the interview or this conversation, we spoke a little bit about in order to, to break the curb of of the, or the ideas and the stereotypes of how people look at Africans or people look at black people, we need to have fair representation. So when you look at um, the people who are engaging with, with the books, are you getting people from, from different parts of the world? What, is, what have been some of the biggest surprises? And also bridging the gap between black people and then African people as well. Has that, have you also seen that kind of uh, changing a lot? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for us, we always try to make it a point to, if not say, then at least even communicate through our style and our and our aesthetics, our me our media and our marketing that these are black. They're not black books just for black people. They're black books for everybody because racism is not black people being racist to themselves. It's racism, discrimination, exclusion. These things exist because we are in an ecosystem with other people, black people, um, African people, people of African and Afro-Caribbean heritage. We're in an ecosystem with other people. So if we're becoming enlightened about these things, equally everybody else has to. Otherwise, you know, we're ending up just preaching to the choir. So it's really important for us, and this is something that we communicate very heavily to schools and libraries, that they need to understand that improving diversity, inclusion and equity, even in the nursery room, it needs to be an experience for everybody. And I certainly do find that there can be a bit of, I wouldn't call it hesitance, but sometimes even just fear for non-Black people to know what to do when it comes to teaching young people about Blackness, really being worried about what to say, uh, getting it wrong and all that kind of stuff. So we work very closely with teachers um, and we also work very closely with parents. We have like a guide. We have teacher's guides which say, you know, if you want to, if you have Mansa Musa built a school, these are questions that you can ask young people. These are exercises that you can do to get them thinking about all these different topics, to get them, you know, uh, engaging with Africa and what's cool about it. So I think it's really uh, important for us to make sure that our books are accessible um, to everybody and that no, and, and that everybody feels like they can pick up a Kunda Kids book. Undoubtedly, if you go onto our Instagram, if you just see the collection of our books, they're unapologetically black. Our characters, our characters are black. Our characters are African. They have, um, African hair, they have African features. We haven't taken homogenous characters and just painted them with brown skin. We've been very careful to look at the different places they come from, mirror people's features, uh, their clothing, their traditions, to be as authentic as possible. But it's important that everybody feels comfortable reading these books because it's important that everybody understands how rich African history is, how beautiful African culture is and how amazing African people are. There's, we're not going to get as far as we can do if we're the only people that can acknowledge that. You, you've said something that uh, touches on the next question that I wanted to go into when it comes to the illustrations and just the intentionality about the representation of culture, colors and all of that. The team that you have working with you, how did you go about finding these fantastic illustrators and building a creative team during COVID? How, how did that all work out and, and the process for putting a book together? So sure, we definitely are not illustrating and we thank God because we wouldn't have the success that we have. Um, honestly, it's really been a journey as a business in terms of the distribution of skills on our team. It's very creative heavy and it needs to be. Um, we... Uh, I think the most important thing to say is that we don't create an isolation. We take time to 
test ideas and to talk about concepts with parents, with teachers, and most importantly, with kids. So when we have an idea, we try and find children in that sort of age range, sometimes a little bit younger as well, and a little bit older as well, and to get their feedback. I remember on the first collection, we had some illustrative concepts, and there was one which was like a very Disney style, and then another which was a very sort of rustic style, I suppose you could call it that. Um, and we were really, you know, I actually looked back at these illustrations from my very, very early days and I just was dying of laughter. I was like, I cannot believe how far we've come because these illustrations are wild. But um, we developed them with children. We asked them for their feedback and we thought that kids were really going to want to go for this Disney style um, but actually, they were really drawn to somewhere in the middle. They kind of like the Disney style, but they also like this kind of like authenticity and not trying to make it too polished, not trying to make it too too Western, you know, actually having something that felt maybe a little bit closer to home. And that was the feedback that we got from kids from all backgrounds. So we love that. And we went with that and have tried to kind of have something that feels modern but also feels so quintessentially, you know, African. We recently finished a design for a Somalian character that I'm so excited about. Um, there is a lot of intentionality around our characters because we want children to be able to see themselves. And even when they, the, even when they themselves are not from the same country or of the same race as the character, we want the character's personality to be relatable. They look like they're a troublemaker. I like that person. An adventurer. Oh, she looks really, you know, sweet and um, and cheeky. So kind of all these sorts of things we need to be able to communicate through through the design. It has been a process. So the first few books were illustrated by two uh, wonderful um, young female artists, Isabel and Tiolu. Uh, they were actually at university at the time. And because of lockdown, schools had closed. So they weren't uh, at school. So, you know, we... we commissioned them to work on some pieces and it wasn't perfect straight away, but we really worked as a team. Delia and I tried to communicate our vision as much as possible. And we really got to a place where we, we had amazing characters. And then when our team grew and our expertise kind of advanced, we even got our old covers and gave them a refresh. Nice. It became even a little bit more modern. Didn't change it, but just like straighten the buildings, made the shading a little bit more um, advanced. So that's been lovely. And when you look at the books that are going to come out towards the end of the year, we're on par, you know, and um, I'm going to say it very boldly. Our team is small. Our business is small. We've only been in, we've only been existing for a couple of years. But if you put our books aside, the likes of Pearson, Penguin, Cambridge Press, Oxford Press, we're on par in terms of quality, in terms of illustration, in terms of writing style and attention to the editorial story, we're on par. And if I was one of those big publishers, um, then I've, I've worked in one of these big publishers before, I would be scared of us. Being self-published, what is that whole, because it's not something, I mean, I'm not an author. I mean, I might be an author one day, who knows, but I, I, you know, I imagine that the normal route would kind of be to like find a publisher and to have your work put out there. But you guys being self-published, was that a decision you made because you couldn't get a publisher or because you were intentional about the fact that you wanted to have control of the entire ecosystem? Yeah, great. So um, Delia and I, we, we both come from a marketing background, but our skills are in very two different places. Together, we're quite ballsy people. So when we had finished writing the first four books, we looked at them and thought, okay, are we just going to be authors and say, this is my book and buy this my book? But then I just kind of thought, well, why can't we publish them under a business and start creating books? Because I think we were quite impressed by what we were able to get out in, in such a short time. We wrote, illustrated, and finalized our first four books in three months right? That's record time. And we put processes in place to be able, you know, to do that. So we kind of get our books up quite quickly without compromising on quality. I had actually been working 
uh, with one of the, the the big publishers at the time, way before I even Kunda Kids was even an idea in my brain. Uh, so when I was working there, I wasn't thinking about running a publishing company or anything, but just indirectly, I was learning a lot and taking a lot of things in. And then I did think to myself, well, we have four books. If it was just one, maybe we would have just been self-publishers. But because we had four books and felt like this is just one of many things to come, we decided to formalize it and then create a business. And then we thought, well, let's become a publisher. To put it simply for, you know, for anybody that's sort of learning about Kunda Kids and our journey for the first time, we are a children's publishing company and a media studio. So we have our publishing side of the business, which is just books. And then we have, you know, the the other side, which I'm sure we'll get to. But that was it. You know, when you look at all these big publishers, we thought, well, how how, how are we going to be publishers? Just two people with no huge publishing experience, uh, new parents. It's like saying you're going to decide that you want to own a bank. It's this big institutional thing that feels really big and scary. But we just said, well, let's be a publisher. If we're going to start a business with books, that means we have to be a publisher. And we learned about what that means from a legal perspective, from an operational perspective. And uh, and that's what it, you know, that's what it was. We knew that we were going to have quite a number of titles that we were going to bring out. And it would just be, I think, a little bit messy to not consolidate that into something that's a bit more easier to manage. Yeah, well, definitely. And also just the, the cost of actually printing, let's say, is that is that something, have you found a way around it? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the main reasons most people that write stories go to a publisher is because of how expensive it is to print. It is extremely expensive and starting and having a publishing business um, is very capital intensive. So, and this is something I'm really happy to talk about because when I listen to other sort of people's stories about their businesses. I love to hear about kind of the nitty gritty of, of how things came to be. So, you know, for us, we were just a young family living in Cambridge. Dele had just finished his MBA. I was just returning to work after taking nine months off maternity leave. And we were just living modestly, getting through life. And we decided that this is what we wanted to do. We had thought about going to a publisher with our books right? And what essentially a publisher does is they take your story, they take your story, your concept, and in most cases, they will find an illustrator for you. They'll work on the story with you. They will find an illustrator for you, market your book for you, and distribute your book for you. So all you have to do as an artist is just have a great story. But we had our own story, We got it edited by a fantastic independent editor. We got it illustrated by a fantastic illustrator. We are marketing experts between us, so we didn't feel like we needed any help in marketing. And when it came to distribution, most publishers are so detached from um, understanding even the consumer journey or expectations of black and brown people who were going to be our key target audience that we kind of wondered, what are you going to do for us that we can't do ourselves? So for us, we we wanted to go through a publisher because we thought that they would take a lot of weight off our hands. But unfortunately, the publishing industry is so slow when it comes to being able to address diverse stories that we didn't feel that they were going to be progressive enough for the vision that we had. And that's why we decided, actually, we think that we can kind of do it ourselves, at least on a small scale, and then we'll grow. Printing the books was very expensive. We had actually had um, some money that we had, you know, saved that we had planned to, you know, do family stuff with, to be honest, um, thinking about property and, and a number of other things. And we put all our bets in printing our first 10,000 books. We gathered every single pound and pence we had and created a website on Squarespace, spent 20 pounds on a domain name. I created our website, did all the e-commerce. Dele did all the kind of business development, reached out to all of our friends um, and created a social media. So it was all kind of very grassroots. And we just put that money together for a print. You know, it was a, a few thousand pounds and we said, we're, we're putting everything, like literally we're putting all of our money into this. But we thought 10,000 books, 
we can sell 10,000 books. Within just our network, we can sell these 10,000 books, right? So it was a big bet for us. It was a big bet for us, to be honest. At the stage where we were, it was a big bet for us and a, a lot of risk. So we waited and we sat there, we waited. It was a few weeks until we would get the books. Then one day this big lorry came with pallets, boxes after boxes after boxes. Uh, we shipped them into our living room our living rooms, not as bad as it is, you know, now we have storage facilities and storage space. So we only keep a small amount of books in our home. Um, but at that time, our house looked like an Amazon warehouse. <laughs> I'm not like we got the books. And then we said to ourselves, let's just start telling people and uh, let's see. So we told one person, she's like, I absolutely love it. I know you don't have the books yet. This is before the books arrived, but uh, I'm going to buy them. So we started getting orders before the books even arrived, just from friends and family. Okay, we thought, cool. This is around Christmas time, around November. When the books came, we had so many orders that we had to spend just days packing, packing books, packing books. I remembered that I literally had, my hands were covered in paper cuts. They were so dry and hard just because of how many envelopes I was stacking full of books and and it was coming to Christmas and so many people were ordering. And, I, and I'm so happy to say like that was only about a year ago. We've since sold all those 10,000 books, which is incredible for us, you know, and we have more books uh, and, a, and a, a wonderful warehouse that's full of books that, that we're selling. So we, we're thankful for that. But when I look back, I just think, that's a beautiful time. And Lee, if you can imagine, we had an 80, I think probably about an 18-month-old an coming to, to about two years at the time. Books that's climbing all over you, also trying to feed him, taking nursery. You know, life is happening amongst among all of this. But, but yeah, it was a big bet. We got our books. Thanks, you know, praise be to God. We've sold all of those books uh, onwards and upward. This was also happening like lockdown was on and off. Because of that, there were so many shortages with Royal Mail. So some of our books were delayed. People were like, um, these books are going to be my children's Christmas presents, right? Is it going to arrive on time? On Christmas Eve, I was delivering books because people were ordering with so much excitement for what we were doing. Our books were going to be like, you know, Christmas, they needed to be opened on Christmas Day. So if you were in London and you did not have your books, I was driving to you. I was driving all over the place, um, delivering books. Sometimes with Ire, he was only two. We were going up apartment blocks together in elevators, driving people's books together, getting into the car. It was the hustle and bustle of life at, the, at that time. But we were doing it. And, you know, we were doing it. We didn't know what we were doing, but we were doing it. I, I love everything about this story. And now, uh, Louisa, let's just shift into the app that you have recently launched, specifically the languages. Language is a huge thing, even for people who are within the continent. So just the idea of having a language app where you'd be able to share stories, animation, music, languages, uh, cultural values and identity but I want to focus specifically on the languages and what the whole aim is around it. We just launched the Kunda Kids app just last week. Okay. This is essentially was meant to be just an MVP. So a minimum viable product just to get it to like the, what is the, the minimum thing we can do? But actually what we have is a lot more than an MVP. So we said, let's just put it out into the world instead of holding on to it. But essentially the future is digital and learning is digital. It doesn't mean that books are going anywhere. Books are also really important, mm. but the future of our business is very much going to be in the digital space, right? If anything, us going into books was about seeing if we could create a strong use case for our existence, right? Do people need to learn? Do people want to learn? Are they willing to buy books to learn about Africa? Books aren't convenient sometimes. You know, you have to get them. You have to wait for them. And we live in a world where we want instant gratification. So we thought if if our books do well, then it's a pretty strong use case for us to go into the digital space with our content and our vision. Kunda Kids app is a free app that we just launched available on the Google Play Store and on the Apple App Store as well. Within 
this app, you can do what you would expect from Kunda Kids, which is read stories in kind of audio format. There's animated eBooks. There's also songs uh, there for children to enjoy. Maybe it's bath time. You can play a song. Getting ready, you can play a song. ABCs, Happy and You Know It, um, Heads, Shoulders, Knees and Toes. But they all have kind of an Afrobeats, uh, African inspired sort of beat, right? So take your normal nursery songs and then kind of add African elements, sounds, instruments, and, and, and general kind of feel to it. That's that's our that's our music proposition. But the most exciting thing on our app is the language area. So within our app, you can go into languages and learn basic words and phrases in a number of different languages, such as uh, Yoruba from Nigeria, Igbo, uh, Wolof, which is spoken in Senegal, Luganda, which is spoken in Uganda, Kiswahili, which is spoken in Tanzania, Kenya, and you know some other parts of East Africa. So, and and the whole point of that is oh and Twi from Ghana the tree from from Ghana which I'm currently trying to learn being in Ghana so you better start learning on the app girl <laughs> <laughs> so the whole point of it is that for parents in the diaspora there is a lot of I, I wouldn't call it sadness but I think disappointment among parents who themselves have lost their mother tongue and I'm one of those people you know when I came to the UK when I was about two or so my mum said I used to speak Rinyankole which is the language that I I speak from where I'm from really fluently but I'm an only child I didn't speak you know I didn't speak it to anybody and so forth. So I lost it. And Dele was saying that even though he speaks, you know, Yoruba very free, um, fluently, when he was growing up, it was kind of like frowned upon to speak Yoruba in school. You speak English in school, but your language wasn't celebrated. And I genuinely really wish that I could speak my language because I feel like when I go home, I'm very disconnected to my family naturally because I can't involve myself in conversations or they have speak English around me, which I'm sure they find frustrating sometimes, or I don't get jokes. There's a, a whole, there's a number of things that I, I miss out on, as well as just being connected to my heritage through the power of language, which is really important. Our app is not designed to get children speaking languages fluently, but it is designed to get them learning about basic words and phrases. So for instance, my son knows what dog, shoe, hello, good night are in Yoruba. So that he can have a connection and a bond with, you know, his grandparents or when he goes home, there's something that he has to draw on. And I think it's such an important thing for us to have and to instill and celebrate for the next generation. Now, that's just about you wanting to know about where you're from. But we also find that children are really interested in learning other people's languages too. The same way children can have an interest and learn French in school and German in school, Spanish, even Mandarin. Why are we not learning any languages from a whole continent within the school system? So recently um, in Illinois and across some state schools in Chicago, they are now implementing uh, African languages as part of the curriculum, which is fantastic. There's no reason. I don't even know why this has not been happening already. But the shift towards prioritizing and celebrating African languages is happening. And, you know, we want to be a support for that, I suppose, you know, and we want to encourage it and, and encourage children's curiosity to learn other languages. One thing we can't seem to get our head around is why our son, who's now three and a half, he loves to learn tree. For whatever reason, he goes into the app and he loves hearing how the words sound in tree, which is the language that's spoken in Ghana. Nobody in our house is going to speak tree to him, that's for sure. But it's lovely that he just has an interest in another language and is learning words and phrases in other languages, just as children have always done. It's just that those languages have always been European languages or, you know, um, and there's no reason why African languages cannot be learned uh, and also no reason why children that are not of African descent cannot go ahead and, and learn words in Swahili. When we were in Kenya, 
we actually there was a surprisingly large European uh, presence. So a lot of we saw a lot of white people living in Kenya, and I don't think that would be a surprise to most people. Um, and they were so happy because a lot of them they're teaching their children Kiswahili and would love to be able to do so in a fun way. So in the Kunda Kids app, basically, there's an area that you can go, and they're animated. We have a, a, a character called Simbi, uh, and she's wonderful, and she teaches you lots of words and phrases. It's animated. Um, she goes throughout her day. She wakes up and tells you good morning and tells you the things that she's doing um, and highlights what the, those words are. So it's really wonderful, and we have a fantastic uh, design team. Uh, shout out to IK, who's our graphic designer, um, and everybody, Chike, uh, our art director, who's worked tirelessly on kind of bringing the app together. Emmanuel, it's wonderful. So you should definitely go in there and, and, and learn some words and phrases. It's for children, but I'm telling you, adults are using it, you know. Now, Louisa, you guys have done so much in such a short period of time. You've got this amazing app, just the awareness around Kunda Kids and the brand, the brand value of the business is fantastic. You're impacting so many people, telling different stories about Africa. You're reminding some of us about where we come from and about having pride and all of that. And you are, you have all these awesome books and just amazing things. What next for Kunda Kids? How far are you guys taking it? Cause I, I heard a rumor. But apparently you wanted to have 365 books. So a book, a <laughs> book for every day of the year, an African story that parents can read for their children. I thought when I heard that, I thought I need to double check this fact. That rumor has Dele's name all over it. So I, I don't know about that rumor, but that is something that sounds like it would have come out of my husband's mouth. So um, I don't know about that, but we certainly have lots and lots of books and stories to come. So let me tell you what's next for Kinder Kids. I'm really excited about it. Some things are underway. Some things are still yet to come. So first and foremost, you know, we started with writing the books ourselves. So we're for Africa's Little Kings and Queens. The majority of those books are written by Dele and myself, but then we also had independent writers uh, write kind of the most newest books. So King Albury Cooks the Best Jollof, as written by um, uh, Sokna Ndai, who's actually a descendant of uh, King Albury, who uh, is a Nigerian character and uh, was a Nigerian queen, written by uh, Ayo Oyeku who is a, a Nigerian author. So we are inviting a lot more independent authors to get their stories published through us, right? And uh, publishing stories for independent writers. Keke and the Cake Thief, uh, written by an incredible independent author and teacher, L.M. Diney. So, so we're publishing books for other people. Uh, that is underway. We have a wonderful story coming out, as I mentioned, with a Somali lead character called Malik's Bridge. We're announcing that next week. So we're just getting all our ducks in a row to make a big splash about that. And then some other stories towards the end of the year, too, um, which are really exciting. So more books, more stories. Those are print stories. Then we're going to have a wealth of stories that are going to be available on the app. So more digital stories. And the great thing about those is that they're free, right? So whether you're on your phone or your child has a tablet, they are just free stories that you can access anytime. Our YouTube is also going to be a wonderful place for us. So all the videos and, and learning um, that people can experience on the app, we're going to also make uh, available on our YouTube, which is free and easily accessible. Um, so we're really excited about that. In terms of some of the bigger waves that we're going to be uh, riding on over the next maybe year or so, I would say that one of them is our animations. So we have light animations currently. We have small animations based on our existing kind of books that we've done, Africa's Little Kings and Queens. And you'll see in the app, we have animated content around language learning. But we are now going to be developing more sophisticated animations to play in the kind of television broadcast space. Um, some really, really interesting characters that we're developing and conversations and pitches that are currently underway, you know, with the likes of Apple TV and other sort of agencies that are representing us, interested in us, uh, and that we hope to kind of develop at scale. So, you know, we are going to be on people's TV sets soon. Not sure whether that will be on Netflix or Prime or, you know, where it will be exactly, 
But that is definitely the next frontier um, in terms of what we're doing. And, you know, we definitely want to be seeing people more face to face. We were born out of lockdown and we, you know, we have a remote team. Uh, we're based in London. Most of our artists are based between Nigeria and Ghana. Um, we have a storytelling team in South Africa. So we're kind of all over the place, which is wonderful. So we want to be doing a lot more events. We're going to be at markets. We're going to be more at festivals, at, you know, uh, book fairs. So I think that's something that's going to be really nice for us is actually being able to see people more face to face um, and having more physical activations from book readings to, you know, fun workshops for kids and families. So a lot more to come kind of in, in, in that regard. Louisa, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your knowledge. I think for me, one of the biggest take home lessons is that when you have an idea, it can definitely lead you into your great purpose. Thank you, Louisa. It's been a pleasure and an absolute blessing to, to be able to, to speak to you and, and tell our story on your amazing platform. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Africa Whisperer. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with my esteemed guest. Please, if you want to find out anything more about the podcast, go to theafricawhisperer.com where you can find out about the team that helps put this production together, my amazing guests that we have each and every week, as well as send any feedback that you might have by emailing hello at theafricawhisperer.com. Also, remember to Follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter as Lee Kasumba. Catch you next time. Thanks.